Amen. Now, if you have a Bible, let me invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 18. Genesis 18, and we're at verse uh, 16 to the end tonight. We are continuing our study of God's grace to Abraham and Sarah. And in Abraham, to be a blessing to all the families of the earth, that promise. Last week in the first 15 verses, we saw Abraham entertaining very special visitors. The Lord got in two angels in the appearance of three men. In the afternoon heat, Abraham and Sarah fed them a feast. And then in the after dinner conversation, they refreshed Mr. and Mrs. Abraham. How? Well, you may remember the Lord spoke promises. And he reiterated the promise, but directly this time to Sarah, that in a year she would have the promised son, Isaac. And she laughed to herself. She had ceased to be of childbearing years. Her husband was old and dried up. She laughed, and God knew she laughed, and he rebuked her for lying, saying she hadn't laughed. And yet God refreshed their hopes in this promised son. Now, the dinner is over. The conversation apparently is over, at least at Abraham's tent. And the visitors are going to head off towards Sodom. And Abraham is going to walk with them a little bit to set them on their way. Like a good host might walk his guests out the door to the car to safely see them away from home. And there, God invites Abraham to consider what he is going to do to Sodom and Gomorrah and why he is going to do it. And so let me invite you to consider that from God's Word in Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verses 16 and following, and to consider how Abraham responds with appeals of intercession and how we might likewise respond to the Lord. Genesis chapter 18, beginning at verse 16. Hear now the word of our God. Then the men set out from there, and they looked down toward Sodom. And Abraham went with them to set them on their way. And the Lord said, Shall I hide from Abraham? What I am about to do, seeing that Abraham shall surely become a great and mighty nation, and all the nations of the earth shall be blessed in him. For I have chosen him that he may command his children and his household after him to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice, so that the Lord may bring to Abraham what he has promised him. And the Lord said, because the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very great, I will go down to see whether they have done altogether according to the outcry that has come to me. And if not, I will know. So the men turned from there and went toward Sodom. But Abraham stood before the Lord. Then Abraham drew near and said, Will you indeed sweep away the righteous with the wicked? 
Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be that from you. Shall not the judge of all the earth do what is just? And the Lord said, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. And Abraham answered and said, Behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord, I who am but dust and ashes. Suppose five of the 50 righteous are lacking. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And he said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 there. And again he spoke to him and said, suppose 40 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 40 I will not do it. Then he said, oh, let, the, let not the Lord be angry and I will speak. Suppose 30 are found there. He answered, I will not do it if I find 30 there. And he said, behold, I have undertaken to speak to the Lord. Suppose 20 are found there. He answered, for the sake of 20, I will not destroy it. And then he said, oh, let the Lord, or let not the Lord be angry, and I will speak again. But this once, suppose 10 are found there. And he answered, for the sake of 10, I will not destroy it. And the Lord went his way. When he had finished speaking to Abraham. And Abraham returned to his place. Amen. This is God's word. May he cut our hearts with it. Let's look to him in prayer. And our Father in heaven, we pray that you would be our teacher tonight. We pray that you would speak. I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts would be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. About the Santa Carolina Mountains. Near Tucson, one trip advisor wrote by way of review, a review entitled Mount Lemon is a Lemon. They wrote this. Tour guides tout Mount Lemon is a tourist must see. But as a day tourist arriving in the fire ravaged summit, it's a bit of a disappointment. Reconstruction of Summer Haven is still in progress. There's really not a lot to see or do. As for the famous Mount Lemon Cafe, the pies are nothing special. The coffee is ordinary, and the service is absolutely the worst we encountered in the USA. Not often I don't leave a tip, but the staff at this establishment didn't deserve one. Some places just aren't what a visitor might hope they would be. And Sodom is a place like that, but worse as we will see in the next chapter. 
but from the scenic or not so scenic overlook looking down upon Sodom, God discusses it with Abraham. And in discussing it is another example of his friendship with Abraham. I mean, here he, he unveils his plans to Abraham. He invites him to comment on those plans. He listens to Abraham's appeals for Sodom. And he even, as we're going to see next week, answers his prayer. This is an intimate relationship the Lord has here with a man. And he asks out loud to the angels, Shall I tell Abraham what I am about to do to Sodom? Now why would you ask that question? Unless you were trying to provoke the curiosity of Abraham. This is like a, a parent who mentions, I've got big plans for us next week, but then doesn't tell them what they are until the kid says, I have to know, what are we going to do? What's happening next week? That's what's going on here. He's provoking Abraham. He wants Abraham to hear the plans because of Abraham's position and his posterity. What's his position? His position, verse 18, is he is to be the channel through which the nations are blessed. And what about his posterity? He is himself to become the head of a nation. A nation of righteous doing people. Justice doing people. And so he needs to know how God treats peoples and nations. He needs to know before something terrible happens at Sodom what it is that has happened at Sodom. And so... I want you to think about this, and I want you to think particularly about Abraham's response, his his intercession, his appeals, his prayers. So three lessons tonight about his intercession, and then a few applications at the end. In the first place, notice at verses 20 to 22 that God entices us to prayer. Abraham talked to God. That's prayer. I know he's face to face with him, but he's talking to him. That's prayer. He's talking to him on behalf of others. That's intercessory prayer. You don't need to stand face to face with God to stand before the Lord on behalf of others. And that's what he's doing. And the question in light of Sodom's wickedness is designed to provoke Abraham's intercession. Now consider their wickedness in the first place and then his intercession. Consider their wickedness. Verse 20 tells us the outcry against Sodom and Gomorrah is great and their sin is very grave. Now what's going on there? Well, outcry there tells you a little bit. It's actually a legal or judicial term. It's the cry for help of those who are oppressed. And so that has risen to the ears of God, so to speak. But we've been forewarned about that. Back at Genesis 13, 13, we read that the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. And then in Genesis 14, we saw that the king of Sodom was a greedy, power-hungry man who tried to buy Abraham's allegiance with the spoils of war. And in fact, in Genesis 14, we saw that after Abraham won a great victory against the four kings led by King Ketelamar that had destroyed Sodom, taken Lot and his possessions captive, but not just Lot, the men, the people, the women, it specifically points out, and Abraham wins this decisive victory, bringing them all home safely. Still, Sodom doesn't give a rip about the God who made that happen. 
They had the testimony of Melchizedek and Abraham praising Yahweh who gave victory to Abraham and they scorned Yahweh who gave that victory. And furthermore, the prophet Ezekiel tells us something about their sin as well. In Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 and 50, it reads this way. God saying this through the prophet, Behold, this was the guilt of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters had pride, excess of food, and prosperous ease, but did not aid the poor and the needy. They were haughty and did an abomination before me, so I removed them when I saw it. Now that's an indictment by Ezekiel, and by the way, not just against Sodom, but actually it's an indictment against the people of Israel, because if you go in context, the verse just prior to that, he's comparing Jerusalem at the time of Ezekiel with Sodom, and he says, Jerusalem, you are just like them, and in fact, quote, within a very little time you were more corrupt than they in all your ways. You're just like your sister Sodom, only worse, God says about his own people. Now back to the sin of Sodom, because that's in Genesis 18. And one last thing to note, we're going to come up on it, so I'll just mention in Genesis 19, in addition to all these other sins, they were inhospitable to strangers. And they were violent sexual predators. And that will become very clear. All of this is their wickedness. And God hears the cries of the oppressed. And He hears the cries of the abused. And the cries have cried out against them. And He says to Abraham, talk to me about this nation. Let me, let me tell you what I'm planning. Let's discuss this together. And He does. Verse 22, He stands before Yahweh and he intercedes. And I, what I want you to see is that God prompted that intercession. This is God's idea that he should inter, intercede. Shall I tell him what I'm going to do? Provokes it. Now, sometimes that provocation can come in very dramatic ways, even in our own experience. There's a wonderful story about Mary Morrison. She was converted during the revival on the Isle of Lewis in 19. 19- 48 to the 19, 1952. There was a revival there for three years. Somewhere in there, Duncan Campbell was the premier preacher in that revival, and afterwards he became the principal of Faith Mission Bible College in Edinburgh. And Mary went there to study, to train for ministry, and sometimes students like her went out on missions across Scotland, and sometimes Duncan Campbell would go with them. It was a kind of camaraderie among the student and professor. That's the background for this story because in 1957, five, six, seven, eight years later, Duncan Campbell went to South Africa on a preaching tour. And he was speaking one afternoon and evening in Pretoria and a great a burden for him came upon Mary Morrison back in Britain. She went off by herself and she prayed for him. And then she immediately wrote to him, asking if anything was wrong and noting the day and the time she had been so burdened for him. It turned out that at that exact 
time he had been preaching, in the middle of his message, he suffered a severe hemorrhage and had to be rushed to the hospital from the platform. And here Mary Morrison, 6,000 miles away, God moved her to pray for him. Sometimes God's promptings are that dramatic. Sometimes they are very routine. Sometimes uh, you just receive a note from a friend who's describing a family trouble or uh, an illness or a faith crisis. Or maybe you get a missionary letter from somebody and at the end they say, here's five or six things I'd like you to pray about with me. Or maybe you hear something disturbing on the news and your heart is troubled and you say, I've just got to pray to the Lord about this. And so you do. No bells ringing, no dramatic timing you know of, but a bit of information that takes you into the Lord's presence to appeal, to intercede. Now, what I want us to see is that God prompted him to do that. And that means this, at least. The one implication of that is that we should not make the mistake of thinking that we want to pray more than God wants to answer our prayers. You should not make the mistake of thinking Abraham here cares about Sodom more than God cares about Sodom. That Abraham somehow loves the people of Sodom, but God is less loving toward the people of Sodom. Do not make that mistake here. This is God's idea that he should intercede for them. Ezekiel 33 verse 11, As I live, declares the Lord God, I have no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but that the wicked turn from his way and live. That is God's heart. And it is commensurate with his his perfection, with his perfect righteousness, with his perfect justice, he who provokes us to pray. C.H. Spurgeon says, prayer is like a carrier pigeon. God sends the pigeon out with a message, and it lights in our homes, and then we send it back. And so prayer starts from the heart of God and moves to our hearts, and as we are captured by His concerns, we send those concerns right back to Him. That's what's happened here. Abraham knows his God. God reveals to him the coming destruction of this city. And Abraham's heart, because he knows the heart of his God, is moved to intercede before the Lord on their behalf. That's the first thing you've got to see. Now the second is this. Verses 23 to 25, his intercession is based on the character of God. 23 to 25, then Abraham drew near and said, will you indeed wipe or sweep away the righteous with the wicked? Suppose there are 50 righteous within the city. Will you then sweep away the place and not spare it for the 50 righteous who are in it? Far be it from you to do such a thing, to put the righteous to death with the wicked, so that the righteous fare as the wicked. Far be it from you. It's almost like he's saying that would be, to say it reverently, well, that would be wicked of you, Lord. May it never be, how, may not, shall not the judge of all the earth do right? And of course he will. 
Abraham is pressing his intercession, knowing that God who he appeals to is a righteous God. Now you have to understand, none of his pagan neighbors would have assumed that about God. But Ralph Davis says, with pagan deities, it's like something like getting a letter from Senator William Allison of Iowa. Once Allison dictated a long letter to his secretary, a letter that was in answer to some pointed question from one of his constituents, and when he had finished, he asked to his secretary, what do you think of that reply? And his secretary hesitated, but politely said, to be entirely candid, Senator, it is difficult to gather exactly what you mean. And he was gleeful. Admirable, admirable. That's precisely the idea. I don't want him to know what I mean. And that's the way it is with pagan deities. You don't know what they really care about. They could change their mind tomorrow. They have attention deficit disorder. They're entirely capricious. The decrees of the gods in pagan religion aren't just. They don't have to be just and they can fluctuate. But Abraham knows that he has a God who is just, whose character is righteous. May you never do anything wrong, Lord God, he says. And the Bible wants us to be so clear about that point that the Lord God, Yahweh himself, goes out of his way to demonstrate that he's righteous. How does he do that? Well, what do you think the investigation is about? Why do you think he says, I will go down and see? For myself. I mean, we're talking about a God who doesn't need to learn anything. He knows everything. Nothing comes as a surprise to him. But this is an accommodation to Abraham. It's a manner of revealing himself to man so that we may be assured that the Lord does indeed do all things knowledgeably. He doesn't do anything mistakenly. He isn't swift to judgment without gathering all the relevant, pertinent facts of the case. I'm going to go down and see if this cry that I have heard has really brought an end to them. God's judgments are always considered and measured and justifiable responses of a holy God to that which is evil. And it is nothing else. And so he goes down because he wants to see if they have made a complete end of things. That's the language here. Have they done altogether as the outcry suggests? Meaning, have they brought an end to themselves? Is the fullness of their sin complete? It's the same idea we saw in Genesis 15 where it said that the iniquity of the Amorites, the people living in the land of promise for which the Israelites will wait 400 years in slavery in Egypt, before they can come into the land of promise because the people who live there now, their iniquity is not yet complete. In other words, God's patience will that for them will endure for four more centuries before it is complete and judgment against them is just. But here, God's patience is over and they have 
made an end of themselves and made themselves liable to judgment, as we'll see in chapter 19. Now you may wonder here when Abraham talks so much about will you destroy the righteous with the wicked, who's he talking about? Who are the righteous? Well, in short, you might look at Psalm 32 sometime. Many things we could say about this issue. But Psalm 32, verses 10 and 11 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but steadfast love surrounds the one who trusts in the Lord. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you upright in heart. In other words, it, it, it contrasts the wicked, middle of verse 10, their sorrows, and those who trust in the Lord, and they are the righteous who should rejoice. In other words, the righteous are those who trust in the Lord, and the wicked are those who don't. And the righteous rejoice, verses 1 to 5 of Psalm 32, because they're forgiven of their sins and their rebellions and their iniquities. Now that basic distinction of either trusting in the Lord or not trusting in the Lord manifests itself, of course, in in a pattern of life. It evidences itself in a life that is characterized by that which is right or that which is evil. Absolutely. But it flows from the heart. It flows from the changed life. It flows from the belief. It flows from either trusting the Lord or not. The righteous trusted the Lord and then are learning to walk with the Lord and the wicked reject the Lord's promises. The wicked reject the Lord's presence and the wicked reject the Lord's path. And they want nothing to do with Him. And God, it says, will deal with them justly. Because he is righteous. He will not do otherwise. Now what is helpful about that for us is that when we don't have all the answers, we can depend on someone who at least does. We just say, whatever my God ordains is right. His holy will abideth. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. His character is a pillow upon which to lay your head at night. There's a magazine called Leadership Magazine, and it passed on the story of Maxie Dunham about about Lloyd Douglas. He's the author of The Robe and other novels. When he was a university student, he lived in a boarding house. He lived upstairs, and downstairs on the first floor was an elderly and infirm former music teacher. And they had this daily ritual where Douglas would come down the stairs, open the man's door, and ask, well, what's the good news? And the gentleman would pick up his tuning fork, tap it on the side of his wheelchair, and say, that's middle C. It was middle C yesterday, it will be middle C tomorrow, and it will be middle C a thousand years from now. The tenor upstairs sings flat. The piano across the hall is out of tune, but my friend, that is middle C. (laughs) And in the middle of everything else, there is something solid upon which you can lay your head, and that is the character of your God. He is righteous. He is always righteous. He will never, ever do anything wrong. 
And Abraham appeals to him on that basis. Now the last thing I want you to see is in verses 26 to 33, and that's this. In his appeal, in his intercession, there is in it the principle of representation and substitution. Now what are we talking about here? Well, Abraham asked God if he would be willing to spare the city for the sake of 50 righteous people. And the Lord says, verse 26, If I find at Sodom 50 righteous in the city, I will spare the whole place for their sake. Now, why Abraham started at 50, we have no idea. Most likely, perhaps, he felt like that was a safe number. He's looking at a big city. Surely there are 50 righteous people to be found there. The progression down to 10 isn't a negotiation. He isn't bargaining or changing the mind of God. He he is rather in an exploration of Yahweh's intention. What will you do if there are 50? Well, what if there are just 45? What if there are just 40? What about 30? What about 20? What is in fact the minimum number of righteous people for whom you would be willing to spare the city? What is it? not changing the Lord's mind here as if the Lord was going to wipe them out until Abraham mentioned 50 or 40 or 30 he always knew what his threshold would be Abraham is figuring that out but at the number 10 Abraham stops asking questions now tone is hard to read in the Bible we don't know if there was something in the tone of the Lord's responses to him over time that made him think well this is about as far as I should ask We don't know if that's the case for sure. It may be Abraham himself thought, well, surely 10 won't be too hard to find. I know Lot's there, and he's got a family, and surely there will be 10. Maybe that's what he's thinking. God, though, it says, would spare Sodom if even 10 righteous could be found. But of course, as you know, he does not spare Sodom because 10 righteous could not be found. And the principle at work in and behind Abraham's appeals here seems to be this, that the presence of God's people benefits the wicked even in this age. That the presence of the people of God in and amongst their neighbors, those who trust the Lord, brings benefit to those who do not trust the Lord. And in that we see a hint of the principle of representation and substitution. The wicked may be spared here by the presence of the righteous. And is that not a foreshadowing of a much greater substitution which brings the sparing of the wicked? For there is one who is righteous in all his ways, who gave himself on behalf of the ungodly, and in substitution on our behalf, that we might be spared. What is the minimum number of righteous for whom God would be willing to spare the wicked? One. One substitute, and that is the Lord Jesus. He is all you need. God made Him who knew no sin, that in Him you might become the righteousness of God. Romans 5, by one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. And that is good news. Trust in him and you will be saved.
And if you are among the saved, three quick points then of application to you. Pass on, preserve, and pray. Number one, let us pass on the faith to our posterity. Abraham, this passage teaches, was to teach his descendants to keep the way of the Lord and to do what is righteous and just. This is one of the reasons God was sharing with him this story. So let us teach our posterity about the Lord and His salvation. Teach them what is right. Call them to walk in it. Teach them the judgments of God that they are right, that God is good, and His judgments are real, and that we must all appear one day before the judgment seat of Christ, but Jesus, our judge, is also our Savior and therefore our hope. Number two, understand the preserving influence of God's people. God wants us to know the blessing His people bring to a community. We are, as Jesus said, the salt of the earth. What does salt do? It preserves things from decay. And the restraint of decay restrains the judgment of a nation. We are called to be a blessing to our neighbors. And our presence is in fact a blessing to our neighbors. And this is a good place to remind us that it is for God to bring judgment by His own action and through His own ordained agents of justice like governors. In light of today's horrific news of wicked murders in Florida, let us remember that no man should execute judgment under his own authority. It is not left up to decide when any individual or nation has brought an end to itself. Christians rather are called like Abraham to bring God's blessing to people. And this passage says we do. But thirdly, pray. Whether you're thinking of your family and your posterity, or you're thinking of the nations and your neighbors, pray. We live in a world of wickedness. We live in a country and in a world that is institutionalized and legislated evil into the very fabric of our culture, which calls that which is evil good and calls that which is good evil. And many are oppressed and abused in this world on account of that. And there are many who oppress and abuse and none of us is untouched by either side of that equation. And we know that a day is coming when the Lord will return in final judgment. And knowing what we know, we of all people should pray for God's mercy upon this place. For the sake of the righteous, we should pray that evil would be exposed and addressed. And we should pray for justice. And we should pray that God would spare and deliver His people amidst His judgments. And let us pray that many would turn And return to the Lord. And live. And when you, to whom I am speaking, are afflicted for your failures in passing it on and in preserving and in praying, then just remember Jesus always lives to intercede for you.
and his intercession is always effective. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need Jesus. We need your son and his work. We need his righteousness to be clothed in him, to be found in him, not having a righteousness of our own, which is but filthy rags, but a perfect righteousness in Jesus and acceptability to you. Thank you for him, our Savior. Thank you that he always lives for our good and well-being and intercedes. We need you. Our hearts are heavy for the world in which we live and the evil which it does and which we have done. Pardon us, we pray. Blot out all our transgressions. In Christ's name I ask it. Amen. Amen. Let's stand together and sing.